This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, as oil prices dive and the economy in Venezuela follows suit, we have a deep discussion on Venezuela as a petrostate and why oil can sometimes make all the difference. But first, Gabriela Conchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Protesters marched in more than 20 cities in the U.S. this week, demonstrating against the visit of Mexico's president, Enrique Peña Nieto, to Washington, D.C. The protesters demand more Mexican government action in the case of 43 students missing since September. The parents of the students refused to believe the students were killed by drug cartels without the knowledge of the Mexican government. U.S. President Barack Obama defended his Mexican counterpart during their visit. President Peña Nieto was able to describe to me the reform programs that he's initiated around these issues. Uh, Our commitment is to be a friend and supporter of Mexico uh, in uh, its efforts to uh, eliminate the scourge uh, of violence. Mexican authorities have found bone fragments from one of the missing students in a garbage dump in the state of Guerrero, but so far they have not found the remains of the others. This week, Mexican authorities arrested 10 more people in connection to the case. So far, authorities have detained at least 90 people in connection with the disappearance of the students. More than 50 police officers are among those facing charges. The U.S. State Department will begin negotiations with Cuba over new migration policies later this month. Cubans are leaving the island in greater numbers during the past year than any other time in the past generation. U.S. immigration authorities fear the new shift in friendlier relations between the two countries may be sparking more migrants. Migrants using rafts and boats to cross the Florida Straits more than doubled last month, perhaps fueled by the positive diplomatic announcements. Currently, Cuban migrants are treated as political refugees. If they manage to get to land in the U.S. in their attempts to emigrate, they're usually granted asylum. However, the U.S. Coast Guard will return Cuban migrants to their home country if they encounter them at sea. Many Cubans fear the liberal immigration and asylum policies of the U.S. government will end soon under the change in diplomatic relations. Military authorities in Paraguay say they have killed one of the leaders of one of that country's guerrilla groups. Authorities say they killed Albino Jera, the leader of the Armed Peasant Association of Paraguay in a shootout. The Armed Peasant Association is one of two guerrilla groups in the country. The larger group is called the Paraguayan People's Army. Those guerrilla groups have operated in the country for the past nine years. The groups claim Paraguay is run by an oligarchy, and the guerrillas want a new political order to address the needs of the country's poor. What's McDonald's like if you can't order their world-famous french fries? Consumers in Venezuela are finding out, as more than 100 McDonald's franchise restaurants are dealing with a shortage of fries. Some are serving yuca instead. The Venezuelan government is blaming a contract dispute with dock workers in the U.S. for the lack of fries. The U.S. Potato Board, which tracks potato sales, says Venezuela imported less than 15% of its usual allotment of frozen fries in 2014. 
likely due to the country's fiscal policies and currency controls. We'll have more on the economic challenges and issues facing the Venezuelan government next on this program. For Latin Pulse, this is Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. And now, this week's focus on Venezuela and oil. Since last month, it's been easy to find gasoline here in the central part of the U.S., priced at under $2 a gallon. That's all tied to the worldwide price of oil, which dipped under $50 per barrel this week. With oil losing half of its price since June and inflation running at more than 63% in Venezuela, that country's economy has taken quite a tumble. Beset by shortages of consumer goods, the Venezuelan government admitted last week the country's economy is now in recession. That had Venezuela's president out on the road the past week exploring trade deals in Brazil, in Chile, and most importantly, in China, where President Maduro says he secured a loan of $20 billion in exchange for oil. Last month, with Venezuela's economy headed downward, we spoke with Dan Hellinger of Webster University about Venezuela's challenges. Hellinger is the co-editor of the book, Bolivarian Democracy in Venezuela, Participation, Politics, and Culture. We spoke with him near his office in St. Louis, Missouri. Latest polls from data analysis, I think, have both President Maduro at his lowest point in, in um, I believe, only um, 20 or 24 percent of the populace supporting him. Um, 85% of the populace saying that the country's headed in the wrong direction. How are those polls really related to the state of oil? Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, not directly. That is, you don't have a lot of people in Venezuela saying, oh, Maduro is really mishandling the oil policy, and that's why we don't like him. That's certainly not the connection. Um, the connection is pretty much what it's always been in Venezuela. You could say it's the oil stupid. Oil prices are, and, and oil sales exports are responsible for approximately 45% of government revenues and 95% of export revenues in the country. And that can go up, go down a little bit, depending on the prices. So, what, so you know, up until about two months ago, oil prices were very high, almost at historic highs. That means a lot of surplus. Um, so then, like a lot of other petrostates, it means that Venezuela spent a lot of money on what are called the missions, the social programs. And that's great because that lifts standard of living. Um, a lot of money was also wasted pretty clearly on projects, on corruption. It's hard to know exactly how much, but it's not hard to find a Venezuelan who will tell you that a lot of the oil money was wasted. Well, now all of a sudden, we've seen a 30% decline in the price of oil. Um, and Venezuela also exports some of its oil at discounted prices to Cuba and to places like Jamaica and other Caribbean countries. And Venezuela now consumes uh, more than 25% of the oil that it produces. So you really have not only shrinking prices, but shrinking amount of oil available to sell in the world market. And that means that the government squeezed financially. So the, where this hits the Venezuelan and what most impacts their opinion is simply that the money isn't there to kind of maintain the services and the programs in, to the extent that, they, that it once was. Let's go a bit deeper into that. Mm -hmm. um, the Venezuelans have been getting a lot of loans from the Chinese. Right. 
those loans have to be paid back in oil, do they not? Yeah, it's not just the Chinese. Some of the ones from the Russians, um, not so much the Russians, they have oil, but there are other countries that have also, and essentially, it's not just collateral, it's also, we prefer to be paid in oil than to be you know, paid in dollars, for example. So um, what that means is that in an era in which, as I was explaining a moment ago, Venezuelans have more oil earmarked for discounted markets or are producing it at a loss for their own people, um, they also now have much more oil that they owe to the Chinese. So, for example, the government just took a $4 billion loan from the Chinese, which was theirs to use however they wanted to, they could invest it in more oil production. They could invest it in social programs. They could invest it in economic programs. What the government's done is put it in its reserves. Now, by putting it in its reserves, now what that means is they can pay some of their other bills, and they owe quite a bit of money to international airlines, for example. Um, there are some outstanding loans from, from uh, global banks, cert companies that provide services in the oil industry. All of them have claims upon the Venezuelan government. And the $4 billion now goes there, and it, pays, it will help pay for some of that. But what it also means, of course, is that the Venezuelans somehow have to produce the oil to pay the Chinese in oil for that $4 billion. So this would be less of a problem if the government were producing more oil. And frankly, I don't think the government ought to just be blindly raising its oil production. It needs to operate within OPEC quotas, for example. Um, but by the government's own goals, goals set back when Chavez was still alive, they should be producing about 5 billion barrels of oil a year now, and they're, still, they're actually producing slightly less at about $3 billion a year than, than they were um, at the time that the goals were set. So, you know, in the past, I was kind of, an, if you will, an oil expert. I've always argued that, you know, Venezuela is smart to be careful about overproducing and setting off a kind of production war within OPEC. Um, but at the same time, there has to be a reasonable amount of production, especially if they're going to provide discounted oil. And again, if they're 25 percent of their oil is just in a sense going up and literally in smoke in the back of uh, automobiles and because and they trucks. only charge a few cents. Oh, it's yeah, gas. it's it's we're talking about the equivalent of about 15, 20 cents a gallon. Um, you can you can buy a bottle of shampoo; it will cost you more than the equivalent of, a, or, or Coca-Cola or whatever, it will cost you more than gasoline in Venezuela. Um, and, and you know, I, the, the basic point is that the minimum the Venezuelans have to do is to charge enough money to be able to cover the cost of production, right? And they don't even do that. But now it's going to be harder than ever to make that change. It's a change that they really needed to make gradually a few over the, over the years. But it's always a little bit like in the United States, we talk about Social Security as the third rail of politics or cutting the, the, uh, the deductions, that were the credits that homeowners get from mortgages. That's what gasoline is in Venezuela. It was when Carlos uh, Andres Perez was about to raise gasoline prices in 1989 in, in uh, compliance with an agreement he had with the International Monetary Fund for loans to get through a prior financial crisis. That's what touched off rioting in 22 cities in Venezuela that was known as the Caracaso. So ever since that time, nobody wants to talk about it. 
And the opposition, which loves to criticize the government, of course, for anything it can, um, and has always blasted the government just in general for sort of like not producing enough oil and its oil policy. Um, when Maduro even hints that he might have to raise domestic oil prices, the opposition gets all over and says, oh, you're wasting money on these exports to other countries and you could be producing more. It's really an unfair criticism because they're just, they're the ones playing the populist card there. Those protests and riots that you talked about, aren't they the beginnings then of, of, of what we see as the change in Venezuela toward Chavismo, toward the Chavista movement? It's a landmark. It's one of the landmarks in that process. And it was, um, you know, it, 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 particularly because Paris sent the army out to repress it, and it was very bloody, um, that inflamed military nationalists. And in 1989, nobody outside of the Venezuelan military had ever heard of Hugo Chavez. But Hugo Chavez already had organized a kind of um, conspiratorial group within the military that was talking about a more nationalist kind of government and replacing. A, a, they, never, they never said they wanted to overthrow democracy. What they said they wanted to make a better democracy. Um, be that as it may, that's really um, kind of inspires uh, more support for Chavez within the military ranks. And he emerges in 1992 after a failed attempt to overthrow Paris. I wonder about the power of the Venezuelan military today. Certainly the military is very supportive of the current government, but the military is also very much more present in the Venezuelan media. Yeah. Uh, if you go to Venezuela, you see the military's presence in, in ways that are reminiscent uh, to those of us who were in Central America during a particular phase of, 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 just, of just the sort of presence of the military that gives people some unease. Well, I guess so, but it depends. I mean, I think I think that there's a big difference there. I mean, I, I think the military in Venezuela has been actively participating in the kinds of social and economic programs uh, that actually the military was trying to repress in the Central American cases. So I, I don't think the, the analogy there is is a good one. But but I will say this much that I think we're. We're now a couple years removed, almost two years removed from Chavez's death. Chavez came out of the military. He had a deft hand with the military. He knew its culture. Um, he was a man of humble origins, very reflective of, the, uh, of a lot of the officer corps of the military. Um, well, now it's two years later. And I, Maduro comes out of a whole different environment. He was a union organizer. He was a bus driver. He does come from humble origins, but he doesn't have the same kind of rapport, I think, with the military. With the military in Venezuela, like a lot of militaries, we can only speculate what's going on within the ranks. Um, certainly, there have always been uh, uh, officers, retired officers, who even in, when Chavez was alive, would severely criticize the government for using the military and social programs and say that's not the job of the military. Um, I, my, you know, I, I can give you sort of a best guess, and my best guess is that there are elements within the Venezuelan military who would probably welcome an opportunity to overthrow the government and get some power. You, you mentioned early on this issue of corruption. Where is that centered? Is that centered in the military? Is it centered in the government? Or is it just all through Venezuelan society? It's all through. You know, it's really tough to sort of get a handle on 
the economic consequences of corruption. I don't think they're as severe as a lot of people think they are. One way or another, especially when oil was priced at $100, $110 a barrel, literally in a sense you could say it was spilling over. You know, there was so much money coming into the country that it was almost impossible to absorb it, to absorb it all. And that ends up being corruption and it manifests itself in various ways. Uh, there's petty corruption. Uh, in the communal councils, which are these councils, thousands of them all over Venezuela, you have some councils in which people are working hard to be responsible with the money, innovating with programs, really doing grassroots things. You got other places where these are almost shell organizations set up by a couple politicos within the PSUV who are able to sort of fill out the right forms and then pocket the money when it comes. You know? So there's that level of corruption. Then, you know, I think the biggest thing in terms of, I don't, it's not just, in sometimes, I wouldn't call it, let's call it legal corruption sometimes. What the government, and this includes Chavez, not just Maduro, what they've effectively done with oil prices and an overvalued exchange rate is turn the dollars over to the bourgeoisie. Yeah? You, and, and you can't just do that. <laughs> you can't just sort of give them money at these preferential rates um, and it's not, when I say the bourgeoisie, I also, I don't just mean private capitalists and the people that run the big supermarket chains and wholesaling outfits. I'm, I'm also talking to people that are in government enterprises, you know, the big uh, metallurgical industries and Bolivar. And I think there's, I think there, that corruption is very hard to measure. Um, what we can say is that it certainly corrodes support for the government. It erodes legitimacy when people, and it's going to be worse now when people feel like they're being asked to sacrifice and they're going to start asking the same kinds of questions I asked after the oil boom of the 70, where did the money go? Thank you so much, Dan Hellinger of Webster University and the Center for Democracy in the Americas, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you for inviting me. This planet we call Earth Abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Venezuela claims the world's largest reserves of petroleum, but that means its political fortunes have often ridden the roller coaster attached to world oil prices. We consulted with Alejandro Velasco at New York University via Skype about the Venezuelan economy. Velasco is the author of the forthcoming book, Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. Here are excerpts from our conversation. And I think what you'd find from from most mainstream analysts, and oddly also some of the some of the some of the left, I would say, they all tend to agree that the major problem, really hampering and anchoring, um, weighing down the Venezuelan political system right now, is the exchange rate, which um, uh, has pegged the 
um, the local currency bolivar to the dollar at a completely um, uh, unrealistic level, and that has given rise to all sorts of distortions in the economy, black market um, rates, um, inf uh, inflation uh, as a matter of course, um, devaluation of the local currency, and even though there have been some measures on the part of the Maduro administration to try to rectify um, to try to rectify that that rate situation, um, they have been reluctant to actually go the step that's required and raise the price of you know, basically devalue the currency. And insofar as they delay that, um, then the problems are going to persist, and these problems extend not just again to sort of the value of the currency, but also to shortages, to um, to the lack of cash that's available on hand um, by the by the government, especially now as oil prices are dropping. To be able to import the products that it needs that then, you know, when it does actually import them, they're found very easily in the black market because there's such a tremendous sort of incentive to take these imports that are um, brought in through the, um, through the official rate and then resell them at the at the black market rate. So the you know the, the most the key step that they really need to take is this very what seems like a simple kind of economic step and yet for whatever reason, well I mean not whatever reason, there's certainly interesting political reasons to think about, um, the government has been reluctant to take. But in terms of the economic system, in terms of the political system, Venezuela remains as it was for the last really 100 years a petrostate and it's there's no one really in the opposition or the government that's suggesting anything outside of a petrostate model um, and what that really means in terms of the politics um, is that uh, thinking about the, the sort of future horizons of what, um, what Venezuela might be facing um, there's really no difference you know between the Chavista model and a pre-Chavista model and a post-Chavista model. It's just a matter of, you know, to what extent the, the government is, you know, funneling the channel, you know, channeling the resources of oil income to popular sectors or not. That's that's really the, the that's the that's the nut and bolts of the of the situation. Beyond that, sort of the ideology, the you know, the socialist rhetoric, um, that really has very very little currency in most sectors of Venezuela, whether it's pro, you know, pro government or anti government. Because you are an expert on history and the history of Venezuela in particular, I wonder whether this period then marks a very vulnerable period for the government. Because as we know, in the past. We've seen coups and major changes in Venezuelan government when the price of oil is this low or when people are upset about how the funding of oil is redistributed through Venezuelan society. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the really interesting um, things about the protests that happened earlier this year, even though they extended for as long as they did, um, the there was really very little um, uh, participation from popular sectors. They tended to be concentrated in middle class sectors of the population, even though of course, that's not. I mean, that's a generalization. There were certainly, you know, um, some you know, uh, people from Barrios who participated. I don't want to discount that. Um, but it, especially given how bad the economy was starting off this year, and it's only worsened since then, you would have expected a lot more um, protests. What you're seeing now is an uptick in protests, specifically around um, immediate issues of um, economic lack, and that's what you weren't seeing so much in, in the protests earlier this year. And so this rounds of, these rounds of protests are far more directly incorporating popular sectors. And this does mark a very significant shift and a very tenuous moment, um, a moment of great fragility for the government, because, of course, these are precisely the sectors 
to which it um, has said it responds, or at least it has historically. Um, and so to the extent that it's you know, popular sectors, people from barrios who are participating in these street protests, demanding you know, improvements in the economy, demanding it, and then to, you know, to, some, sort, you know, to some sort of change in the, in the economic situation, this really becomes a very significant um, headache for the government. And the, you know, the, the, the most significant part of it is that the longer the government delays some of these measures, um, the more it's going to be affected electorally um, come uh, the December um, elections in, in, um, in, in December of next year, because, of course, the less time there will be for some of those measures to actually take effect. Um, so really, to some extent, uh, you know, the government is caught in a very precarious um, situation. It needs to delay these policies because it realizes that it's going to have a very strong political effect on its constituency, its primary constituency, but yet it can't delay these policies because the more that it does so, the greater the electoral effect is going to be in December 2015. So it's, it's stuck in a vice. What haven't we covered that you think is important for us to know? I think one of the interesting things is um, to think about what's happening in Venezuela in light of some of the um, analyses about the left turn more broadly. Um, and one of the remarkable features is that as Venezuela's political and economic system really um, deteriorates very rapidly, you're finding in places like Bolivia and in Ecuador tremendously robust um, uh, economic and political um, situations. So there's a very, uh, very significant kind of mirroring effect um, or an opposite mirror, sort of a, a, a negative effect that we're seeing between countries that were previously lumped together as sort of the bad left of Latin America. And in fact, what we're seeing, um, unfortunately, is that in the case of Venezuela, um, you know, it's the, the petrostate dynamic is really hampering um, its performance, much as it hampered the performance of previous governments when oil prices declined. Um, and the government really didn't do much in terms of building up its industrial sector and getting some kind of independence from the volatility of the oil markets. Whereas in places like Bolivia and um, Ecuador, which early on in their um, sort of left-wing presidencies very much benefited from the largesse of Venezuela's oil field economy, are now in a state of maturity where they don't need sort of the support of Venezuela um, just at the time when Venezuela is really um, is really entering a very difficult phase, right? So I think that this contrast between, you know, governments that were previously seen as, you know, irresponsible left, um, like Bolivia and, um, and Ecuador, but are really, in fact, now being held up as, as, a, as an example of a very, very strong functioning left. And then places like Venezuela, which even though, to some extent, spearheaded this transition, are now finding themselves because of the dynamics of the petrostate in really tough straits, um, that contrast, I think, is, is a story to, to, to pursue and to really keep an eye on why that was the case and what that portends for the future of the left in the region. Alvaro Garcia Linera, the vice president of Bolivia, was just here at NYU last week, and he was introduced by Jorge Castañeda, who, of course, was the one who, you know, uh, introduced this notion of the good or and, and bad left, and where Garcia Linera was showing slide after slide, um, uh, giving evidence to Bolivia sort of tremendous economic robustness. And here was Castañeda kind of uh, dwarfed by these images, in some ways having to reassess his, you know, his assumptions about what the bad left constituted, right? On the other hand, there's still Venezuela. 
And I think what this crisis in Minnesota over the last few months has really laid bare is the extent to which um, Venezuela's revolution was really not about socialism. It was really just about um, giving new visibility to sectors of the population that hadn't had it before, which is saying a lot. That's not to be discounted. But I think these ideas about the, the extent to which it was a socialist revolution are really were and um, now have been laid bare to have been really overstated. You know, popular sectors in Venezuela, especially in this battery that I mostly focus on, they didn't completely discount the, um, you know, the Punta Fijista period. In fact, they, they, they very much supported it electorally. But they also understood that if this was going to be any kind of democracy, that they needed to be able to have a say. And that wasn't something that was just in terms of rhetoric or an abstraction. So it was very real and immediately felt. And so that's why, you know, they took to the streets as much as they did during a time when people felt like the institutions of democracy were very robust. They worked for some, but not for many others. And so, you know, this interplay between protest and electoral politics, that's very much woven deeply in the fabric of how people in barrios understand democracy in Venezuela. Um, and it's not really about you know, a broader ideological project. It's really just about accountability. Thank you so much, Alejandro Velasco of New York University, the author of the forthcoming book, Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela, our guest today again on Latin Pulse. Thank you so much, Rick. I appreciate it. That concludes our program with a focus on Venezuela. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You could find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, producer Jim Singer and production assistant Gabriela Conchola. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. Mm-hmm.